All right, so John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, if you'd like to follow along. We're going to look into that chapter through verse 27 as we just read. The topic, the high priest sends a large force of temple police and Roman soldiers to arrest the Son of God. The title of the message, Arrested Divinity. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love having your word open before us. We pray for open hearts. We want to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church and to each of us individually as Christians. This is the word that can do it because it divides between the soul and the spirit like no other can. And so, Lord, uh, help us to understand and apply these words written so long ago, Lord, for uh, the time and place, but infinitely applicable to us today. We thank you in Jesus' name and all who agreed said Amen. That's not a knife. This is a knife. Paul Hogan, a.k.a. Crocodile Dundee, and Linda Kozlowski were confronted by a mugger threatening them with a switchblade. She said, give him your wallet. He's got a knife. He chuckled, pulled out his own knife, and calmly said in his irrepressible Aussie accent, that's not a knife. This is a knife. The knife he brandished is 16 inches in overall length with an intimidating 11-inch blade. There are numerous blades in the account of the arrest of Jesus. The Jewish temple police, with an assist from the Roman army, came, it says, with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Peter had a blade with which he cut off the ear of Malchus. In the midst of all this, something incredible happened. Jesus asked the men sent to arrest him, Whom are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. The Lord answered, I am he. And they drew back and fell to the ground. They were supernaturally pushed back and then fell to the ground by the word of God. Jesus will display that word power with greater potency at his second coming. In the Revelation, the apostle John describes Jesus saying, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. They were killed with the sword which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. The word of God is our sword to wield as well. The Apostle Paul urged believers to put on the entire spiritual armor of God, not least is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I'll organize my comments today around two points. Number one, Jesus stepped forward to save you. And number two, Jesus steps in to keep you. Let's take a look at him stepping forward to save. The words in this text that spoke to me the loudest are, whom are you seeking? Jesus knew that men were coming to arrest him. He did not run. He did not attempt to evade. He went to a place well known to Judas. When the authorities arrived, he stepped forward. Simultaneously, he demonstrated that he possessed supernatural power sufficient to eliminate the threat. He established that he was in charge, not they. He commanded them to let his disciples go free, and they obliged. The confrontation is replete with illustration and symbolism. Jesus stepped forward from the garden. In the Garden of Eden, Jesus promised to step forward to be God in human flesh to save us. Jesus stood before his enemies. Imputed and inherited sin makes us the enemies of God, You'll find the word enmity in scripture, meaning hatred and animosity. 
Jesus died for the human race while we were yet at enmity with God. There were Jews and Gentiles in this posse, temple police and Roman soldiers. He was the Jewish Messiah, but Jesus came to save whosoever will believe in him, Jews and Gentiles. Now, we're Gentiles, so we don't think too much about that, but this was a big deal that the Messiah would be the savior of the world. They came for Jesus, but it was Jesus who had come for them from heaven to earth to save whosoever will believe in him. J.C. Ryle wrote this. He said, to suffer for those whom we love and who are in some sense worthy of our affections is suffering that we can understand. To submit to ill treatment quietly when we have no power to resist is submission that is both graceful and wise. But to suffer voluntarily when we have a power to prevent it and to suffer for a world of unbelieving and ungodly sinners, unasked and unthanked, this is a line of conduct which passes man's understanding. Never let us forget that this is the peculiar beauty of Christ's sufferings when we read the wondrous story of his cross and passion. The authorities were seeking Jesus. Although they were seeking him for harm, it reminds us that sinners do seek the Lord. Don't take my word for it. The Apostle Paul said this, Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. You know, a lot of people make a big deal about the fact that uh, God has scattered people all over the world and how are they going to hear the gospel? I I can't answer every situation, but Paul said God did that purposely so that men would seek him. And so it's, you know, though sinners are drawn to Christ, there's also a seeking after Christ. And so verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, where he and his disciples entered. Jesus and company bedded down in the garden during Passover week. They camped outside. The property which uh, they stayed at was probably owned by a supporter of the Lord. We need to be reminded every now and then that there were other faithful followers besides the 11 and those who traveled with Jesus. And so there weren't you know, Jesus didn't die with millions of followers or hundreds or thousands even, but there were more believers than uh, we normally think. In verse 2, it says, And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas had inside information on where to find the Lord. He was a paid informant. We would say he is the mole. Don't you love those movies and shows where you have to, who's the mole? He's, ah, it's that guy. It's got to be that guy. Uh, the only hint they give you is it has to be a character that, you, that you've already seen, you know, otherwise it doesn't make any sense. But I'm not really very good at figuring out who the mole is. But uh, so that was Judas. He, it, now, the thing is, verse 3, it says, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, he came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Each of the Gospels calls it a multitude. And so we're talking about hundreds of uh, uh, law enforcement personnel at least. 
Some people get really wild and say that one of the words is a cohort, which means a thousand men. Uh, I don't think, uh, it doesn't seem like it would be that many, but it wasn't just uh, you know, a couple of officers on duty. I mean, this is at least in the hundreds. It's like a how many joke. How many armed men does it take to arrest God? I don't know. Why don't you finish that and let me know what you think. Jesus, therefore, verse 4, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? Being fully God, Jesus was omniscient. At the same time as a man, he had set aside the independent exercise of his deity. And so perhaps God the Holy Spirit gave Jesus what we would call a word of knowledge to know all the things that would come upon him. It doesn't reduce his deity to see it that way. either. It's, it's, it shows the difficulty, really, of talking about God incarnate. Uh, it's just something we believe and understand, but can't comprehend, really. Uh, you know, and you, because Jesus, you know, he didn't say, well, now I'm going to be God, but now I'm going to be man. He was always God and man at the same time. But he himself said, you know, that his, he put aside his deity and only did what the Father told him to do and only said what the Father told him to say. And so it's very interesting. Uh, and so if you want to look at Jesus as a man then in this situation, then obviously he was a man being led by the Holy Spirit and had the word of knowledge. But either way, uh, he knew what was coming. Robert Clark puts this in perspective, saying, as to his deity, Christ had no mother. As to his humanity, he had no father. He's absolutely the unique son of God, the God-man. Went forward are powerful words. Jesus went forward in eternity past, volunteering for incarnation. Jesus went forward in his baptism to embark upon his mission. Jesus went forward at his arrest, volunteering to be our substitute. In the revelation, Jesus will go forward as the only person in all creation worthy to take the seven-sealed scroll from God the Father and bring us to the consummation of the age. All his going forward was for you to save you. All of these things Jesus did were to bring about the salvation of lost men and women. Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. It speaks to us of how ordinary Jesus looked. The high priest didn't say, he'll be the one glowing in the dark. (laughs) Judas was there to make an identification. He had to positively ID the Lord. Uh, Very ordinary. You know, Forget the artwork through the Middle Ages and all of that. Jesus looked like the average first century Jewish person. Not uglier, not better looking. He just, you just wouldn't pick him out. Uh, the Jews later on uh, or early on, in, in, well, at the beginning, uh, you know, they said, hey, we want to have a king like other nations. And it, it wasn't what they should have ever wanted. Uh, but they chose Saul. And they chose him because he was tall. He was tall Saul. He was head and shoulders taller than anybody else. He was, beautiful. He was a good-looking guy. He was tall, uh, and he was a big, fat, spiritual loser in the end, okay? And, and God said, no, no, my pick is a little ruddy shepherd boy uh, that nobody would ever think is going to be the king. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, Jesus was, you know, he, he wasn't really super recognizable, and so Judas had to go there and make the identification. In some Bibles, the word he is italicized. It indicates that it was not in the original text, 
but added by translators to help the sentence flow in English. And sometimes it actually takes away from what's going on because what Jesus said was, I am. And he was claiming equality with God. Uh, and so they came seeking and said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And then this happened. Now, when he said to them, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. They drew back. It's as if they had been shoved, all of them, all at once. And then they fell to the ground, all of them, all at once. This, my, one, absolutely my favorite scene in all the Gospels. To, to, to have seen this would have been incredible. They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. Just all of a sudden, these guys are all down. What happened? These, now, the Romans especially, the temple police probably didn't see much action. But Roman soldiers, I mean, these guys, you know, these were like special ops guys of today. I mean, they were rough, tough. Uh, you know, they, they, they killed people for salt. That's how they got paid. And they said, hey, uh, I'm in. Modern military, paid for salt, sure. What else do I have to do? Jesus didn't shout. He didn't talk at a certain frequency. You know, I love those, ah, some superhero, oh, and everybody goes down, break, breaks their ears or something. The more nonchalant, the more power is attributed to God and not gimmick. I think sometimes we get louder and boisterous and it becomes more gimmicky uh, when really God is nonchalant about these things. And so I, I foresee this as, you know, who are you seeking? Jesus said, I am. And then all of a sudden, these guys are all down. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I wonder if they had some hesitation. <laughs> he answered, I've told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. I wonder how many of them dug in expecting another push, especially the Romans, because when you study their armor, you find out that they had spiked shoes in order to not lose ground in battle. And so I can see these guys getting up and wondering what happened and then just really planting themselves in and then nothing happens this next time. These aren't the disciples you are looking for. No, no, it wasn't a Jedi mind trick. The Lord's words, let these go their way, were a command and not a negotiation or a request. He was commanding them to let them go. And so he's, they came for him and he gave himself over to their arrest, but not before he established that he was in charge, that he had the power to not be arrested, and that they were going to let his disciples go. That that saying might be fulfilled, verse 9, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Jesus' concern was more about the 11 than about himself. He must suffer at the hands of persecutors, but they need not, at least not on that night. Then Simon Peter, verse 10, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Malchus was there to represent the high priest. Before I forget, John doesn't tell us, but Jesus healed the ear of Malchus. Commentators describe Peter being groggy from sleeping through prayer with the other disciples. Suddenly he wakes up and swings his sword wildly. Cutting off an ear cleanly would be a one-in-a-million hack for a sleepwalker. I suggest Peter was pretty skilled with the blade. Now, this wasn't Excalibur or Narsil. You ever wonder if these guys have these 20-foot blades that they're wielding, you know, and stuff? Uh, you're better off just with an axe. But these big swords, it wasn't even a Roman broadsword. Peter didn't walk around strapped, sword at the ready. He wasn't the one with the concealed carry permit. 
It was illegal for a Jew to be armed. This must have been a smaller blade that could be hidden. A chef is skilled with his blades. A surgeon is skilled with a scalpel. A fisherman by trade, Peter, would have been skilled with certain knives to flay fish, for example. The disciples were always expecting Jesus to establish the kingdom of God, probably by force. You have to always remember what's going on here. A few days earlier, Jesus had rode into Jerusalem and had been hailed, what? The king of the Jews. And they were ready to make him king. They thought he was their, the Messiah who was going to overthrow the Roman government and reestablish Israel as an independent nation. And, and so Peter, this is my speculation, but I think it's a good one. Peter may have thought this was the kerfuffle that would begin the downfall of Rome. That let's go. I've got my sword. You've, Jesus, you just mowed down this whole group. We're taking over from this point. Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? There was going to be a cross before the crown. The cup is his suffering and death on our behalf. Jesus drained it. In the past, maybe even right now, has God given you a cup of suffering? If so, how would you describe your drinking of it? Are you trying to sip it a little bit at a time? Get used to it? Is it a cup half full? Have you tried spilling it out? Maybe you've put additives from the world seeking to sweeten it or to dull its effect. Just drain it. Just accept it and drain it and uh, you know, let the Lord minister to you through it. Peter fought the world using a weapon of the world. He struck a blow for sure, but in the long run, he would have been undone by the swords of hundreds. You can't fight the world with its weapons. You shouldn't. You don't need to. When you unsheath manipulation or guilting or pressuring or intimidation or anger or abuse or craftiness or lying or fear, etc., etc., you are wielding the swords of the world while all the while ignoring and thereby dulling the sword of the Spirit. Humble yourself and let God show his resurrection life through you. Don't resort to the weapons of the world. Secondly, here we see in verses 12 through 26 that Jesus steps in to keep you. A perp walk is an American tradition of parading a suspect before the media. It serves as a form of public shaming. The Jewish leadership wanted Jesus shamed as much as possible, and it started with his arrest and subsequent perp walk to Annas. And so verse 12, then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. There was no need to bind him except to cause him shame. Verse 13, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. A high priest was supposed to serve for life. The occupying Romans did not like the concentration of power in one person, so they frequently pressured the Jews to change high priests. But since it was a family thing, Annas was succeeded by five of his sons, and at that time by his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And so despite Rome's efforts, Annas remained the real power behind the priesthood. Caiaphas seemed bent on killing Jesus, thinking it would benefit the nation. It would, just not in the way that he thought. It wouldn't eliminate Jesus so that everybody could get back to normal Judaism. 
It would uh, overthrow the world as the disciples would go forward sharing the gospel. In verse 15, we read, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Nine of the disciples skedaddled. Two followed Jesus, Peter and the other disciple, probably John being humble. John had some pull and was able to get Peter into the courtyard where they had taken Jesus. Peter's going to fail momentarily, but kudos for following when nine other colleagues fled. You've heard of fight or flight. For a disciple, the choice can be follow or flee. And up until this point, Peter decided to follow. The rich young ruler wanted to follow Jesus. You might remember that story in the Gospels. He was living a life of piety and discipline. Jesus told him to divest himself of his wealth and then follow. Instead, he fled. Verse 17, then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Bold to cold in record time. J.C. Ryle wrote, however, if Peter's fall has made Christians see more clearly their own great weakness and Christ's great compassion, then Peter's fall has not been recorded in vain. How we are thankful for uh, these things in Scripture. Just, just knowing that the Lord didn't give up on Peter. I mean, he outright denied him. Uh, you know, uh, he went, a, a few minutes earlier, he was ready to cut people's ears off to establish the kingdom, and now he outright denies Jesus. Uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that if it happens in the world, you say, you're dead to me. Uh, I, I don't want to know you anymore. I might even forgive you, but you're gone as far as I'm concerned. And the Lord just isn't, isn't that way with his children. He isn't that way with us. You and I are failures. Uh, we're not always faithful, are we? Uh, we can do some really heinous things, as a matter of fact. And yet the Lord continues to love us and work with us and work to restore us. John 18, 18. Now the servants and the officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Undoubtedly, some of those around the fire had been part of the posse. They brought Jesus to Annas. They're in the courtyard of uh, this guy, and they're warming themselves by the fire, and so is Peter. Why did Peter chance being recognized after he had just been challenged and uh, denied the Lord? I, again, it's only speculation because we're not told, but even though he had already denied the Lord once, I think he figured that no way would he do it again. That, you know, he'd learned his lesson, he denied the Lord, and, and he just said, hey, I'm going to put that behind me and move on. Maybe you have some kind of life-dominating sin. You fall into it over and over again. You repent thinking that's the end of it, but you keep falling. And if that's true, you need to find a new strategy. Maybe talk to somebody or, or talk to the Lord first. But that's the idea here. As Peter said, yeah, I'm, I'm done with that. I'm not going to sin that way anymore. And then he did. Uh, and, and so know your own strengths, know your own weaknesses. Hey, f there are things you shouldn't do as a Christian. Maybe other Christians can do them. That's great. Praise the Lord for liberty. Uh, but you need to know your own heart and uh, where you're coming from. And, and, and don't, don't think it's more mature to have more liberty in Christ. 
It's not less mature. It's not more mature. It's just you and your relationship with the Lord, right? I mean, I, there's a lot of gray areas, uh, and, and you just need to know what the Lord wants you to do, not other people. Can a Christian blank? Well, you know, there's things that, you know, are those gray areas. It isn't, it isn't can a Christian, it's can I? Can I do this? Is this going to enhance my relationship with the Lord? And so I just see Peter as thinking, yeah, I, I, I'm over denying the Lord now. And he was nowhere near being over. Verse 19, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me. What I said to them, indeed, they know what I said. The authorities were required to produce witnesses to substantiate any accusations against a person. Jesus exposed their hypocrisy because there were no witnesses. There was no one who could accuse him of anything without lying, let alone two people. And when he had said these things, verse 22, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? No matter the reaction of this temple officer, Jesus could not disrespect the office of the high priest. This wasn't sarcasm or him being disrespectful. And then even after being struck, he kept his composure and asked a penetrating but appropriate question. And so Jesus is in charge of this situation. Verse 24, then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Taking Jesus first to Annas was a nod towards the real power of the priesthood. Jesus is our great high priest. You can note the contrast between he and these men who served as priests, like Annas and Caiaphas. They were men who were not even saved, let alone qualified to serve as the high priest. Uh, there are a lot of men and women in churches uh, serving at, at a high level, pastoring even, teaching, who are not saved. Uh, you know, have they been born again? Have, if not, uh, you've got some problems. And so title means nothing, um, you know, are you born again? And these guys certainly were not. Verse 25, now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore, they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, uh, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again and immediately a rooster crowed. Peter insisted he would be cock-a-doodle-don't he was cock-a-doodle-doo. He fell hard. I mean, this is, you know, this is, I wonder what Peter thought when he, you know, read the Gospels. Well, I know what he thought because he dictated, perhaps, or at least gave the incidents to Mark, who wrote his Gospel. And, uh, and Jesus, or Peter rather, wanted this reported so that we could glean insight from it. Jesus kept all the disciples, not Judas, we said and saw in a previous study that he was an unbeliever from the start and was never saved. Uh, he kept all the disciples, and uh, we see it in a really powerful way in Peter. Even though the nine abandoned him, it, which is in a sense a, a denial, 
Uh, Peter denied him and uh, three times, and the Lord still restored him. Jesus keeps you if you're a Christian. 1 Thessalonians 5, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. And so the Lord's going to do those things that Paul prayed. He's going to sanctify you, change you from moment to moment more to be like Jesus. Your whole spirit, soul, and body will be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord. He is faithful when you are faithless, and he will do this. His faithfulness is on the line in your life, if you're a Christian, to bring you to completion. Something Thanos said to Dr. Strange has got me thinking. I've used this before, but I think it's a great line. He said to him, you never once used your greatest weapon. The word of God wielded by those yielded to the Lord is our greatest weapon. I can't tell you precisely what that means in your circumstances, but if you believe it is true, and you should, having all the examples in the Bible, the indwelling Holy Spirit will counsel and guide you how to use the word of God against the weapons of the world. An anonymous quote reads, It is by prayer that the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, is effectively unsheathed. Now, I think that might refer to prayer generally, but we tend to think of, oh, I I haven't prayed enough. I I haven't, if I had spent 10 more minutes in prayer, I could have victory and, you know, have the sword of the Spirit. But I think what, in context, that would be specifically asking and keep asking to believe our weapon is superior. We too easily default to the things we learned in the world, pulling out our fish flayer while the world is ready to launch its nukes upon us. We need to understand how to wield the word of God as our weapon and abandon uh, those worldly elements. I mean, this is a really not the, a profound uh, you know, uh, example, but it is an example. A lot of times people will come to the church here or a different church. We're not the only ones that do this, but it, uh, you know, we do it. They come here and they say, I was so happy that uh, there was no talk about money that you know, the pastor didn't get up and for 15 minutes beg the congregation for money or talk about the new project. Or you, you know, if you help us stucco the bathroom, you, you can have a gold throne in the bathroom. You know? so, and and you know, here, we have a toilet up here that you can put your money in. You know, and just, oh, yeah, here's my, here's my contribution into the gold toilet and stuff. You know? Where God guides, God provides. And so all of those other things there, when you start manipulating and pressuring and, and that kind of thing, those are the weapons of the world. And they shouldn't, obviously, they shouldn't be wielded at all in a church. Uh, You know, we want just prayer and and waiting on the Lord, those kinds of things. Now, that's, uh, you know, not the greatest example, as I said, but in our own lives, too, there is the Word of God versus the weapons of the world. And a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times the problems you're having, let's say, at work, uh, the Bible says you're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against wicked powers behind what's happening. And so you need to beat it with the word of God. You don't beat it by transferring or filling out a grievance or, uh, you know, things like that or rallying people to your support. Uh, it's not that you can never leave a job or anything or that you could never file a grievance. That's here, neither here nor there. I think you get the idea. The idea is that you need to meet this in the power of the Holy Spirit with the word of God. Uh, you, you don't need to go cutting people's ears off. 
If they slap you in the face, you can say, hey, why are you doing that? You know, and then, so somewhere in between is where you live and where you represent Jesus driving them crazy. If you want to think, you know, uh, you know wh what's in it for me, you drive people crazy. <laughs> and so that's my counsel a lot of times. People they say, I'm having trouble at work. I say, well, then drive them nuts. Get there early, leave late, be the best employee, uh, turn the other cheek, do all the things that only a Christian can do and let them see Christ in you. It sounds campy, but if it helps to remind us to use our greatest weapon, yield then wield. <laughs>